Hello, I'm Mimi Pickering, your host for Making Connections News. On this show, we are continuing what has been a national remembrance of Eula Hall, an inspiring Eastern Kentucky woman and self-described hillbilly activist who spent a lifetime assisting her neighbors and helping poor people fight for their rights. Also featured is an interview with the author of a new history on West Virginia's Battle of Blair Mountain from the latest episode of the Appalachia America podcast produced by the Ohio Valley Resource and Louisville Public Media. Eula Hall was 93 and still helping out at the Mud Creek Clinic, which she founded in 1973, when she passed away on May 8th. Born into a poor Eastern Kentucky farming family, Eula left school after the 8th grade, worked as a domestic cook and cleaner, and married an abusive husband. But Eula was born a fighter, with a strong sense of justice. Her early experiences seeing family and friends turned away from urgently needed medical care because they had no money led her to lead a community effort to start the Floyd County Clinic along Mud Creek in Grethel, Kentucky. Steve Brooks and Maxine Kenny came to Eastern Kentucky in the late 1960s and early 70s and worked with Eula to get the clinic started and address other injustices that poor people were facing at the time. I spoke to them on Zoom about this history and their longtime friendship with Eula. Steve Brooks and Maxine Kenny, maybe you could tell us a little bit about how you first encountered Eula um, quite a few years ago and, and what was going on, what she was like then. I came to Eastern Kentucky in 1968, the, the fall, uh, September along with four other businesses, five of us. And we lived in, we were spread out on Mud Creek, um, each sort of in a different community. And we were put in a home uh, for the first month. And then we found our own housing. I was on Branham's Creek and a guy named Nick Maliarakis uh, was working the Grethel area. And we, uh, and another Vista, room together then late uh, fall in a mobile home just above John, John M. Stumble School. One uh, evening, Nick came home and said, you got to meet this woman I met today. He was going house to house. And uh, next morning or next day, he took me to meet Eula. As they say, the rest is history. Uh, she was already doing some stuff, but she really yeah, got involved with uh, welfare rights. Um, when we came there, we were told not to work with Appalachian volunteers and not to work on welfare rights. And we were going around getting water easements for lower Mud Creek at that time. Uh, the five of us, this was agreed after a few months that we might as well go home if that's what we're going to do. And we started working with the Appalachian volunteers and and Vista. Anyway, that's when I first met Eula. She was just an outstanding woman even at that time. She expressed herself about the problems that existed on, on Mud Creek. And then once she got involved with ECRO, Eastern Kentucky Welfare Rights Organization, right away became a leader, I would say, you know, 
because of how she could express herself. A lot of the members were just really quiet, uh, not as outspoken as her. She's just very good at ex expressing herself. Within two years, we started working on health issues. Main attorney, Howard Dorfelson, that worked for Appalachian Volunteers, and at that time had brought in five other attorneys, learned about organization in New York City called Health Pact. And that's where Maxine came in, and she, she can follow up from there. I came down an invitation from what was then Mountain Legal Rights that Howard had set up and uh, <clears throat> came down from New York to, and did a workshop for mainly for vistas that were around the region, some from West Virginia, mainly West Virginia and Kentucky, on organizing around healthcare. And I didn't meet Neil at that time. I don't think I met her on that trip, as I recall. Um, did go out to Mud Creek and, and get a sense of Mud Creek and what the needs were there. It, there were many, but health was a really predominant need because of the disabled coal miners and, and their families. Um, they had been cut off from the hospital. Their, their cards had been taken away from the um, United Mine Workers, their health cards. And so they were in a real crisis on health care. Um, they had been there had been some uh, information, I think, that had come to the group that there were there was money available for health care through the Office of Economic Opportunity, uh, the War on Poverty, which, of course, VISTA was part of, uh, but they hadn't quite gotten anything together. At that time, the doctors uh, controlled, the, the local doctors controlled everything as far as healthcare, and they owned, for the most part, owned all the drugstores as well. And the money that was coming in at that time was going directly to, to, the, to them to provide healthcare. And they had uh, decided that the way they would do that was set up outposts, particularly from Mud Creek, where the poorest people were with the greatest health needs. And uh, they set up uh, a transportation system with many family members who had who they gave jobs to to bring people in, I mean, people in to drug stores and get drugs. It was it was the first big influx of of drugs into the mountains, I believe. So that when I came down, I was I was seeing I had been working on uh, my last uh, health pack doing advocacy work across the country, but a lot of things we did were in New York City. Among them, we were working on my particular interest was drug addiction. <clears throat> and when I came to the mountains, I was driving on Mud Creek, you could see people who were just nodding out, who were heavily uh, involved with drugs at that time, mainly from the drugs they were getting with, with the war on poverty money that went to the doctors and drugstores. They were bust in or taken in in Broncos to uh, wow. doctors in town and they maybe would spend 10, 15, 20 minutes at the most with the doctor, probably less than that, and just march right over to the drugstore to get drugs and sent back painkillers mainly and sent back home. And it was a huge amount of money was coming into the county for that. And so I did a workshop and went back and tried to find and found a medical student to come and help write up a proposal for a community controlled health clinic. And Eula was getting very, she got very involved at that point. She worked on the effort to write up a proposal and sent it to, um, to Washington, to the uh, Office of Economic Opportunity. 
and we're trying to get the funds diverted from the doctors to the people for the health care and to set up a local clinic. Came back in September, I think, and the, the uh, proposal had been submitted uh, and was not funded. The, the money continued to go to the, to the doctors and the drugstores in, in uh, Floyd County. That's where we were working. That was the trip where I, I uh, Steve took me out to meet Eula. And it was quite an incredible experience. She was just a powerhouse. And she could coin a phrase like no one else. And it was a phrase you'd never heard anyone else say. I mean, she had an incredible vocabulary and it's so expressive, probably the most expressive person I've ever heard. And mm -hmm. she, was, she was a powerful person and a very, uh, very caring person. She was constant. I, you couldn't be at her house and she wasn't fielding phone calls and helping people, getting them transferred. This is all on her own time. She wasn't being paid by anybody to do all this work. She was just that kind of person. Well, there was a big battle then that went on for quite a while to get the, the poverty money uh, stopped because it was really hurting people's health. And that, that did happen. It was defunded, uh, that program. And we meanwhile had written up a proposal, that same proposal, but uh, still were pushing that proposal of a community controlled health clinic. But we weren't there yet. The first year we, we heard about, uh, in fact, they may have heard about Mud Creek probably, the uh, students at Vanderbilt were starting to do health fairs. And there was a student named Bill Dow who was a, a leader in this um, effort. And they designed a program where they'd come in at, at, with, under the auspices of a local doctor and set up a health fair where people could come and get, get health care, mainly testing of uh, their, 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 their problems and some, and some health care. That was a big struggle to get that. And Eula, of course, was the person who managed to pull that all together. But the next thing we did together was to um, set up a, a summer health program for young people, teenagers, basically. And we, were, we modeled it on what was then um, a model called Barefoot Doctors, where, where un, you know, peasants really would go out in their own communities and, and deliver some health, get trained and, and do some health care. Um, so we had teenagers that went, we set up a laboratory and we had we had contributions from all over of microscopes and so on. And we had about eight young people and the teenagers who uh, would go out up and down the creeks and, and do, get test, do testing, urine samples, fecal samples, and so on. And a lot of the, especially for children, the parasites were a real problem. So Eula was, uh, she was an aunt. She, she uh, engineered, she knew everybody, of course, and they all trusted her, which was great. And so that, that program went on and it culminated in taking the young people and some of the adults to uh, the Grand Old Opry. We went down to Nashville for a couple of days and that was a highlight in lives. Two of the young people became nurses eventually, which was amazing. So I haven't gotten to the, having said the clinic comes next. That was a year <laughs> later. <laughs> we went, I took you to some medical meetings and I found out about uh, the couple, a married couple who were doctors 
Jim Squire and Ellie Graham, who had worked they were in New York City at the time. They weren't from New York, but they were in New York City, working at a hospital there that had become a community-controlled hospital, Lincoln Hospital in the Bronx. And they agreed to come and, and actually, and then I, we recruited some nurses. We went to a medical meeting and had a leaflet, a flyer saying we needed help. And that's how we recruited people. Uh, medical people to come. And so they're volunteer nurses and the two doctors and they they were, uh, they were presided over this uh, barefoot doctor program we had with the kids. Um, that just gave us a lot of information, more data to sell the fact that there was a need for a community clinic there, along with what the health care had found. So, now a lot happened in those two years, 71, 72. But we all there were also some demonstrations. Forget where would we demonstrate in one of the hospitals? Well, in Hoover also, and in yeah. the doctors' offices, trying to get the. Uh, now he's going back to the, the money that's coming into the doctors, trying to get that refunded, mm -hmm. and that was a successful. Um, that was successful after a lot of demonstrating and publicity, actually even national publicity. Mm -hmm. uh, finally, the money. At that time, had been coming in to Carl B. Perkins, who was a hero in Eastern Kentucky. Um, he was sending, he was making here a lot of money, came into Floyd County, uh, and it was being used by the doctors, as I described. At that time, Eula was not the public hero, whatever, the Wonder Woman that she became later in life to get a, a road and clinic named after her, and of course, uh, received. Uh, Honorary degree with Desmond Tutu at Rhea College. Back then, she was a thorn in their side, you know, and it, it uh, took quite a few years before that turned around to, to where it has been the last, I don't know, 20 years or more. More than that. Yeah, more than that. Years. But yeah, the first years, just like the welfare rights organization, this is, and Appalachian volunteers were the bad guys, the communists, and, and outsiders. And, but yeah, Eula eventually, yeah, just became such a strong figure once the clinic got funded. One thing that was different about Eula than almost any other local people, as sophisticated as they might be, she welcomed anyone who would help get her to the goal of getting health care and help for the people of Mud Creek. They could be outsiders and they were good people and they were working for the right cause. They were her friends and she stood up for them. And it was pretty good that you love standing up for you because <laughs> you had a, we needed protection in a lot of times and she was there for sure. She was very, very savvy politically. She was born that way, I think. I don't think as far as how to, how to move ahead and how to reach her goal, she was, powerful person who uh, didn't take a lot of training. I mean, that was that was an inherent in her. She was uh, an inspiration really to anyone who ever worked with her. her. Her best friend, Allie Wicker, one of her who became during this period, we spent a good time with both of them at both their homes for meals and yeah, small social gatherings. Uh, but she and, and Allie, who passed away some years ago. They were big women in every way. <laughs> they were uh, strong 
physically and they were uh, they were uh, an imposing team, but uh, they both were had, had really hard lives and had been abused in many ways and came out of it much stronger in a way. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, Ali would speak out like you or two. There were other women, but none as strong as those two, as far as, yeah, saying <laughs> what they want to say. So how did the clinic finally get started? Well, like I said, we went to some national medical meetings, uh, physicians for human rights. I can't remember the exact medical committee for human rights meeting in Chicago. I remember at one point and uh, had a flyer and recruited some people and the doctors and nurses that we recruited to come for the summer health program. The doctors decided to stay. We had a lot of data at that point of need. And by then we were starting to get money from churches and so on, mainly in individuals to get started before we got any grants. There was never a big grant that came as such. The, uh, the miners had uh, had some of their health, I don't quite understand, I don't remember the history that well, but they did have miners cards still at that point uh, in a limited way. And so the, the miners uh, cards that provided money for health care helped sustain the, the clinic at first that was truly, truly a community-based clinic. At some point, the cards were, were uh, taken away or they lost them. And uh, then other uh, money was coming still through the poverty program, but to the big Sandy healthcare people who were not serving Mud Creek. And of course, the clinic was in a house owned by Eula. <laughs> uh, so there wasn't a, a building, which, most people know at some point got burned. The doctors uh, were working really for volunteer as volunteers. A lot of the health people are as volunteers or very, very, <laughs> and very, very limited income from anything that was coming from the clinic. Um, but they, they stuck with it. But the clinic was uh, a very, very small building in a double wide trailer that had at the Longbeula and they had set up a little dispensary for drugs and they were doing real basic healthcare, which is what, I mean, people there needed a lot of healthcare and a lot of sophisticated healthcare for some people, but really this was basic. And they just hit the ground running and Eula became the director, was the director, always the director. And, was the, and she always had all the social work involved uh, as she always did in the community. And a lot of it was helping people get their their benefits that they, they were eligible for, but they had never been able to get because they, even the legal system was not friendly toward people on Mud Creek. That was something that actually started with Howard Thorkelson uh, teaching us vistas, you know, how to be lay representatives, I think they were called at that time. And we would go into the welfare office with the client and, you know, learn what they were eligible for and, and fight the case for them. The welfare office sort of would cringe whenever they saw one of us coming in with a client that they knew. And we would have uh, hearings when they were denied and of course work with the Howard at first, but then the other attorneys came in. And, and then the other attorneys, there were two that were located in, in Prestonsburg uh, who uh, sort of took that on then and, and got involved in much 
taking those cases higher before Social Security and Black Lung. That's where that eventually went. But yeah, EULA was one that... I think EULA and others, really, EULA leading the the group, the people, uh, learned that they had rights. And that was something they were never allowed to even know about up until that point, until the legal services started giving them information and they took hold of it. That was part of the the welfare rights uh, branch of her life was also very important in getting the health clinic because uh, it empowered people to, to stand mm-hmm. up, and that mm-hmm. that made a big difference. Yeah, the first two issues that we took on were school lunches, and then and then textbooks. And of course, we had a a major fight with the superintendent Charles Clark and the board uh, during that period. Lawsuits even went back and forth. But we prevailed eventually. Well, you would tell the story, and it sort of tells you what things were like then. Of the schools, mm-hmm. there there was school lunch money uh, that was available, but the schools wouldn't take for, for mm-hmm. people, poor people. But they had they did have a, a lunch program yeah. that only people who could afford it would have lunches, and they would sit at the John and Stumble School probably. They would sit the poor kids on the stage and let them sit there and watch the others eat down on the floor where the cafeteria food was. It was pretty bad. And so when when people realized they had rights, they had a lot to say. And, and they, they became a powerful force. I'd say Eula's army at that point when, as they were getting organized. She was always the general, <laughs> an inspirational general. Yeah, she was fearless and it really allowed others to uh, follow her and to help her and to be part of it. You know, she was just fearless. It was to the day she passed on. She was still doing cases for people from home. She couldn't, because of the pandemic, couldn't go, which is, I think, really, she would tell me how sad she would talk on the phone uh, to be at home and want to be there at the office. She's still fielding phone calls and so on, but the fact that she couldn't be out there in person doing what she wanted to do, but she was still working right up until she went in the hospital. Well, there's various stories of being with Eula or events that took place. Uh, eventually, uh, in the later years we were there, we were getting more into, into anti-strip mining activities. And of course, there there was the time the women took over a strip mine in um, not counting, not yeah, Montgomery Creek, yeah. Um, and after after that, a local strip miner uh, sent thugs out to, to our house where we lived on Prater Creek. Uh, a couple, I'll say, kids. They were they were young. We were too, but uh, <laughs> and they had guns brandishing, but they left. Uh, and then they went to Eula's, but Ma- Maxine yeah. called her and uh, said, I called to tell that they were on their way. We knew that's where they were headed. So she was ready. And when they got to her doorstep, she came out, of course, and confronted them. And they were there to intimidate her. And you were never uh, at a loss for uh, finding something uh, to uh, deal with thugs. She picked up her daughter's high-heeled shoe, which she called a slipper, but it was a high-heeled shoe, and started beating them over the head with the high-heeled shoe. 
and drove them. And they're armed with guns. And she's got a high heels and she beat them off the doorstep and sent them on away, which I always love that story. <laughs> but she she was uh, she was not intimidated. She uh, was ready to defend herself and others at any, at any moment, which she often had to do. Kentucky Waffle Rights Organization, which ECRO was part of, we would have meetings with the governor, Governor Nunn at that time. People would ask who's the governor of Kentucky would say we have none. At any rate, uh, we took, uh, we had several meetings. One time we went to Frankfurt and he wouldn't meet with us, but he said something or his staff said, we'll come back sometime, we'll have lunch. Well, we came back with, I don't know, 30, 40, 50 members from across state and he still wouldn't meet with us. So we went down to the cafeteria and I think Eula and I went to the head of the line and told the register, woman at the register, that the governor was paying for it. So all of us went through the line on the governor's bill. You know, we all sat down and there were a couple guys that came down from the governor's office, went to the register and pointed us, uh, us out. But at that time, it was over. But yeah, that's the kind of thing Eula would come up with and, and we would carry on with. And a very full trays. There was some very full trays in the cafeteria, and uh, it was uh, quite a celebration. But I, I think another thing, this is Eula, Eula's, uh, not just her political work or social work, but just her her loving care of people. I mean, you couldn't go into that house without being fed. Huh. And I mean, uh -huh. that was the first thing. You had to be fed. And it probably was a good idea because <laughs> people didn't know where the next year was going to come from sometimes. But I think there wasn't a, a interesting thing about you, there wasn't a cause that would benefit her people that she didn't get involved in. And she would get involved wholeheartedly, jump in with both feet and be a leader or a helper. Uh, an inspiration in many movements that were happening at that time around the same time, not just healthcare. I mean, that was mm -hmm. her, that was her single-handed effort, but she got very involved with my other miners' issues and, mm -hmm. and with, with strikes. And I remember the Methodist hospital strike, she was very involved uh, with anything to do with workers and, 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 and poor people in, uh, in Eastern Kentucky and, and beyond that. Virginia, in the mountains. That was Steve Brooks and Maxine Kenny, friends of Eula Hall, who now live in southwestern Virginia. WMMT listeners may remember the many stories Maxine contributed to WMMT's public affairs programs while she worked at the station. Sylvia Ryerson, another WMMT reporter, has our next story, a book signing party at Apple Shop that Eula attended. Eula Hall lives on Mud Creek in Floyd County. As the founder of the Mud Creek Clinic, Hall has gained national fame as a fighter for the rights of low-income mountain people, especially in the field of health care. Her life is the subject of a new book, Mud Creek Medicine, The Life of Eula Hall and the Fight for Appalachia, by Kieran Batraju. In December 2013, Eula Hall and Kieran Batraju came to Apple Shop. Kieran asked Eula to recount an episode from her early life that dramatizes the medical needs she has spent so much of her life working to meet. For a lot of people who don't know Eula's entire life story, um, I thought it would be 
helpful. Eula, if you told the story that I start the book off with. Yeah, why? There's a story I start the book off with when you were five years old. When my mother was so sick. Exactly. Yeah. But see, all the fam families where, we, where I was raised, and me, myself, we were delivered by midwives. But there wasn't a trained midwife or someone that had education and had, you know, any kind of medical knowledge of uh, health care and problems, especially in, uh, you know, childbirth and stuff. So, mom, Mommy, I, it was, she, she was seven of us children to live, and there was four. She had one to live three weeks and died. One was more, just, it was stillbirth, and then she had two miscarriages, but seven of us lived. So uh, I was always worried about Mommy, because Mama, you know, Mama used to get sick. No doctors, never went to a doctor. Mommy didn't, never have her, and she didn't know what type of blood she had. She never was in the hospital to have a baby. We all were delivered at home by one of these um, uh, homemade midwives, you know, just somebody that took up, took it on themselves to deliver the babies. And uh, Mommy was pregnant, and, and we, you know, I was old enough to know Mommy was pregnant. And I know my mother had the vercus, broke vercus vein. She had knots on her legs that big and, and on her thighs and stuff. So when mommy went into labor, daddy went and got the midwife and uh, mommy labored and labored for a day and night or maybe two days and nights. And she hemorrhaged those veins, those blood veins ruptured. And mommy hemorrhaged, she, she, mommy was white as this table. It's hard to talk about it, but anyway, the midwife gave up. She told Daddy that um, she'd done all she could do. And it would take a doctor and maybe she, she couldn't save Mommy or the baby. Well, we didn't have money. Daddy was the sharecropper. And, you know, we tended fields, cornfields and vegetable fields. And we gave uh, a third of our crops if we tended the hillside. We gave half of them if we tended the bottom. But that's the way we lived. So Daddy, we had cats, a cow or two and had some hogs and chickens and stuff that people on, on the farm had. But when the midwife, we called it, they gave Mommy up. She said, I've done all I can do. She said, it's going to take somebody higher than I am. He said, she said to save her. Well, Daddy just started, you know, he, he didn't know what to do. And he's just pacing, walking. And there was a little grocery store, wasn't a fourth of a mile from where we lived, and that's where we'd done our shopping if we shopped. And uh, he had he had some money, and uh, he had a vehicle. And back then there wasn't, uh, you know, many vehicles like there are now, and there wasn't uh, many people with money. But Daddy went to him and, and told him a thing, what was going on at the house, and that uh, Mommy would have to have a doctor to come out from Piper. She was beyond, there, was, there wasn't any ambulances or had money, didn't have money for ambulance. She was beyond transporting. So they, uh, Daddy decided, they, we'd have the mid, midwife and Daddy together decide we'd have, if anything was happened, we'd have to get a doctor from Powell to come out there. But it wouldn't, so far, it's probably 15 miles. And uh, he, he told that uh, man at the grocery store manager, that the merchant we called him, that uh, we needed the doctor and need, to, need him fast, that mommy was losing, bleeding out and was just about, you know, we was about to lose mommy. We was all scared to death. And uh, he, uh, 
that doctor, I mean, that merchant told Daddy, you know, he said, we're here to take at least $20 to get a doctor to come from Piper and come out there and take care of her if he can. But said, and, and we didn't have it, Daddy didn't have it, but Daddy told him, he said, I'll make it right with you. He said, I've got cattle, and I've got some cattle, and I've got some hogs. And he said, I, you know, you can just pick your choice, what it takes, but you, if you'll go get a doctor. So he, he did, he, he went to Pavel, and he got a doctor, and he brought, her, brought him back out there. And after a while, he delivered the baby, but it was dead. And mommy was sick for a long time. She needed blood. She needed, you know, a lot of, of medical care that she couldn't afford or didn't get. But she, she finally got able, she's weak, she finally got able to get up and take care of us children again with the help of the neighbors and older people and stuff. But, you know, I never forgot that. I never forgot how close it could become to losing mommy. They took, they took a heifer. And daddy had a young heifer, and then, you, you know, we, Living on a farm and depending on it for, you know, feed your family and stuff. You know, we'd always have an older cow than a younger one to to become a cow later on. And you kept young cows like that and you killed your hogs every fall. But we let the, the prettiest cow we had have her go for that $20. Took it, but, you know, it saved mommy. That was the only way we had to do it. And uh, I, I never forgot that. Again, that was Eula Hall speaking with her biographer, Kieran Batraju, here at Apple Shop on December 11th. Eula Hall's incredible life story is now captured in Batraju's new book, Mud Creek Medicine, The Life of Eula Hall and the Fight for Appalachia. Finally, Jeff Young interviews historian Chuck Keeney about his new book, The Road from Blair Mountain, about the significance of the battle that took place there a hundred years ago and also talks with Terry Steele, a retired United Mine Workers member and volunteer at the West Virginia Mine Wars Museum in Matewan, where they are working to revive interest and pride in the history of organizing in the region. Let's say there was a big historic event, a, a battle, and it happened in your home state. Tens of thousands of people were involved. Many fought for days. Many were killed. And the outcome of that battle would have huge implications for the course of American history. You'd probably know about something like that, wouldn't you? I mean, it happened in your home state. It'd be in textbooks. You'd expect a, I don't know, historic park, a marker, something. Well, there was just such an event in West Virginia. But for the better part of a century, the Battle of Blair Mountain was barely known even by many historians, even by many people in West Virginia. And the battlefield itself was nearly blown up. Why? Well, all I can say is, welcome to Appalachia, America. One hundred years ago this summer, thousands of coal miners massed in Kanawha County, West Virginia, they armed themselves with World War I surplus weapons, squirrel guns, whatever they could find. Many tied red bandanas around their necks, the closest thing that this ragtag army had to a uniform. Their union, the United Mine Workers, was engaged in a long and often bloody fight to organize workers farther to the south, where coal operators could run entire towns as their own little coal kingdoms. The marchers made it as far as Blair Mountain 
About 10 years ago, I had a chance to visit Blair Mountain with some local history buffs. They were finding evidence of the battle that had raged there in 1921. Well, we were up here the other day, and uh, we came up with a... Shell casings. With a, with a bunch of shell casings right in this little area. You know, there's more than a million rounds of spent cartridges laying all over this. And, you know, we had metal detector hits going all the way up this ridge line here. That was filmmaker and occasional third-party political candidate Jesse Johnson. I interviewed him for the program Living on Earth. At the time, the group was racing to save not just those artifacts, but the mountain itself. Local resident Jimmy Weekly explained that Arch Cole had a permit to use mountaintop removal mining to blow up Blair Mountain in order to get to the coal underneath. And they're blasting up there. What followed was a years-long fight to save the battlefield and revive its buried history. That's the story that historian Chuck Keeney tells in his new book, The Road to Blair Mountain. Keeney was one of the people who worked with locals like Jimmy Weekly, worked with national historic preservation groups, environmental organizations, and the United Mine Workers, and, as we'll hear, he had a very personal connection to Blair Mountain. Blair Mountain was kind of the borderline between unionized and non-unionized. Organized cooperations went all the way up to the town of Blair. You went over the ridge line, and it's Don Chapin territory and pro-coal company territory. That was the dividing line. And also Blair Mountain and Spruce Fork Ridge, they, it makes basically a natural wall a few miles north of Logan. So it's a natural defensive place. So if the miners want to get through Domingo and lift martial law that was taking place there in the huge bloody strike in the Mingo coal field, then they were going to have to get through. And it was known as early as 1919 that Blair Mountain is where they were going to fight in these ridge lines because they almost did the march in 1919, right after World War One, but it got called off. But even then, Chapin had already set up defensive entrenchments around Blair and all up around that ridge line. Both sides knew well in advance that if there was going to be a major clash, this was where it was going to be. So what do we know about the fight itself? Well, we know a little bit. We don't have a lot of firsthand accounts. I mean, later on with Senate investigations and a few oral histories later, you have people that will recall it. But it's not like the Battle of Gettysburg. It's not like you can look at letters from generals and correspondence from soldiers and diaries and all of this kind of stuff. And they kept to a code of silence. The only way to really fully reconstruct what happened on the battlefield is archaeology. And battlefield archaeology, which is an emerging field, by the way, in archaeology, only it's conflict archaeology, I think, is the more appropriate term. But they begin studying, studying battlefields. And you can find, based on where you find bullet shell casings, entrenchments, you can know where people were set up, where the troop movements were, where the fighting was the heaviest, what kind of guns each side had. For example, we know that the defenders had Tommy guns, they had machine guns, the attackers, you know, had squirrel rifles, uh, and uh, some of them just had muskets. Others you know, may have had up to a thirty out 6 but where you can see the difference in the types of weapons they were using, you can see where they were attacking. But over 80% of the battlefield has never been studied by professional archaeologists. So there's a lot we don't know. And that's one of the reasons why saving the landscape itself is so imperative. Well, this brings us up to 
let's say, late 20th century, turn of the century, when there is this renewed interest in what happened there and a sense of urgency because there's the very real threat at the time that the mountain itself may no longer exist. The coal industry wanted to use mountaintop removal to destroy the site. So there was this real danger that they were going to try to destroy the place. You also saw that in the 90s in Pratt, the uh, Mother Jones house, where she was held under house arrest, was put under the National Register of Historic Places, and it got bulldozed in the 90s. So there was this immediate response by the industry to destroy physical sites related to the mine wars as that history was becoming more prominent on a regional level. Keeney and his allies waged a multi-front assault, some organized marches and protests. Meanwhile, at the foot of the mountain, Blair resident Jimmy Weekly faced a big decision. His property in Pigeon Roost Hollow was the last plot the mining company wanted to buy as a place to dump the rubble from the blasting. When I spoke to Weekly in 2010, he explained his decision. Look over here to this place right here. You don't see no mountain ranges. It's all flat, 10 square miles over there. Now, that's what they're wanting to do here. And I'll be damned if I'm going to set up front that damn and try to cover me up. And they ain't going to do it. Jimmy Weekly passed away in 2014. He never sold out. The combination of efforts bought time for Chuck Keeney and others to pour over permits and documents for a legal challenge. They fought a state decision that had reversed an earlier finding that Blair Mountain should be placed on the National Register of Historic Places. And because of that pressure, we were able to get additional layers of protection that held things off until we won the federal lawsuit that put uh, Blair Mountain back on the National Register. You know, one thing I find very striking is this is your professional interest. You're a historian, but this is also your personal history. This is family history, right? That's right. It's something that I grew up with. I talk about it and write about it all the time. I probably wouldn't have gotten involved in, in all of this had it not been for my family history. I was not an activist of any kind, really. But somehow I knew that a family member played a central role in it. And that fact that, okay, there was a war and nobody talks about it is something that led me on this professional trajectory and then, of course, into this activism. So tell me about the Keeney who was there 100 years earlier, Frank Keeney. Yeah, you know, my family's been in what is now West Virginia since 1751. Frank Keeney was born in 1882, the very same year that the world's first coal-fired power plant debuted in New York City. Kind of an interesting thing. The family had lost their land. His father died very young. After he completed the sixth grade in school, he left and helped support the family by working as a trap boy, worked in the mines for about 20 years, and then became involved in the union movement. He met Mother Jones a few years before the Pink Creek Cabin Creek strike, and then became a leader uh, amongst the miners. And he was known for having, you know, a natural charisma, a natural speaker. He was self-educated. He read all the time. One of the things that, that I'm really proud about is that we have the Mine Wars Museum, is I have a book of poetry that uh, Frank Keeney read in his tent during the Pink Creek Cabin Creek strike that was passed down to me. But anyway, Keeney would, of course, later become president of District 17 in West Virginia, of the UMWA, and president of the State Federation of Labor. He would become, you know, a key member in all the events happening around Blair Mountain, 
And then afterwards, after the treason trials, John L. Lewis dismissed Heaney and Mooney from the UMWA, forced them to resign because he felt they were too radical. Wow. Can we back up a minute, though? Treason trial? Yeah, the treason trials are a series of trials that followed the Battle of Blair Mountain. There was my great-grandfather, Bill Blizzard, Fred Mooney, and over 500 of the miners that participated were tried for various things from treason against the state. It wasn't treason against the United States, but treason against West Virginia and murder, conspiracy to commit murder and all the, a lot of these other crimes. So they were just dubbed the treason trials that stretched from 1922 all the way to 1924. But the miners, while they were able to win the trials for the most part, there were a couple of convictions. There were two miners that turned state's evidence that were going to testify against Keeney and Mooney and Blizzard, but they ended up being found dead before they could testify. Mm. Um, nonetheless, it's a, a saga in and, of it, in and of itself. But that bankrupted the union in West Virginia. By 1924, they didn't have any money left, and Keeney and Mooney were kicked out. They had 50,000 union miners in West Virginia in 1924. By 1929, it was less than 1,000. So it wiped the union out in West Virginia. So you know Frank Keeney's story now in a very detailed fashion, but I'm wondering, growing up and in your family, where did Frank Keeney stand in family lore, the, the history you told yourselves about your family? Not that great. Really. He was certainly not idolized in my family. Of course, he was a kind of, when I was growing up, he was something of a forgotten figure anyway. The mind wars were kind of a forgotten thing. But also there was a lot of internal family issues. He mortgaged his house during the Great Depression to pay for food for the miners. He often had uh, striking miners and stuff staying in the homes in his home, his children that were still alive when I was uh, old enough to be able to have some sense, I interviewed his surviving children. And they talk about waking up, going to school and having to step over sleeping miners that were all over the place. And <laughs> wow. his wife, Bessie, had to sleep with a gun under her pillow at all times because of all the death threats. And eventually it all led to him separating from his family. Some people mm -hmm. felt that he chose the miners over his family. And also, you know, he'd been responsible for murder. <laughs> he'd been responsible for people had killed for him. My dad has told me many times about his funeral, which happened before I was born. But uh, dad was at his funeral, and he said hundreds of miners showed up at his funeral. They didn't expect anybody to be there, but hundreds of miners showed up. And he said miners would just come up to him and tell him stories and say, you know, we killed for him. If he told us somebody needed to go, that's what we did. So you had all of those different factors. And if people don't understand the history, it doesn't seem like bragging rights to say, hey, my great-grandfather was uh, tried for murder and treason. Um, <laughs> that doesn't right. understand right. the context, then it's not really a whole lot to brag about. It's so fascinating, this persistent theme of buried histories here. Your family sort of burying this family history, the state and industry conspiring, I would say, to bury the labor history in our uh, region. And then here at Blair Mountain, the very literal <laughs> possibility of burying, physically burying, the historical place itself. Yeah, it's so multi-layered. Just Blair Mountain itself. It's about the history, it's about labor, environmentalism. There's racial undertones to things that happened there and economy, politics. I mean, it's all, it's all there. 
now that you and others are helping to revive this history, and not just Blair Mountain, by the way, but via the Mine Wars Museum, the broader history of what happened during those violent struggles for organizing labor, what is the potential now for how that informs people from Appalachia and helps them in how they see themselves and their place in American history? It's a long process. It's obviously a long game that we're playing here. I refer to it as identity reclamation in the book. It's because our history has not been taught to us. We've been kind of given a false constructed identity of who we are. And sharing the history of the mine wars is about stripping away that false reality of a coal industry that has portrayed itself as this benevolent benefactor to the region, when in reality it's something that brought a lot of death, fighting, and bloodshed, and that actually stripped wealth as opposed to providing wealth. One of the big lines of the coal industry is they always say, we should be grateful for the jobs they provide, as opposed to them being grateful for the resources that we have. And we want to alter that narrative. And it takes time, of course, to get people to kind of view that in in an alternate way. But I think it's had tangible results. I don't think that's any coincidence that a lot of teachers were wearing red bandanas when they went on strike three years ago. And I don't think that they would have done that had they gone on strike 15 years ago or 20 years ago. I don't think they would have wore the red bandanas because it wasn't that much in public discourse. But it was. They wore the red bandanas. They talked about Blair Mountain. And I think that's in part because of these efforts to reinsert it into the public consciousness. The red bandana is sort of the uniform of the marching miners. Right. Yeah. Right. And it's because of that movement to save the battlefield that that really got reinserted into public consciousness. It's something that is slowly having tangible results. But again, it's a slow gain. We, we of course, elected a coal operator two times in a row right, in West Virginia. I think if we understood our history better, we would elect different types of politicians. So how do we apply Blair Mountain? Well, as I said earlier, you saw the economy in West Virginia bottom out as a result of non-unionized mines in West Virginia in the 1920s. You saw more death. You saw more poverty. And when you have unionism at a low point, that's when you have wealth inequality increase. And you also see an increase in radicalism on both the left and the right. Because as the wealth gap increases, you see more people on the left going towards anarchism, socialism, more people on the right going towards, you know, far right wing extremism. This is what happens when the wealth gap increases and unions are one of the big things that can hold that together, rebalance things a little bit. You're never going to get full economic equality with unions, but you're going to get a better, closer to being equitable life for working people with unions. And if work people don't have power in the workplace, Blair Mountain is an example of what happens when people don't have that kind of power. Huh. I'm going to try paraphrasing Faulkner here. This past isn't buried. It isn't even past. The things you're describing from then feel so relevant and resonant to what we're living through today. Right, right. 
Uh, I think so. I think it's as important now as it ever was. It's just fascinating. Chuck Keeney, thank you so much. Thank you for having me, Jeff. I appreciate it. I appreciate anybody who wants to talk about it. And I hope people can come to the museum and remember the Blair Centennial is this year. and We've got a whole weekend full of events over Labor Day. Chuck Keeney's book is The Road to Blair Mountain, Saving a Mine Wars Battlefield from King Cole. Just ahead, the history lessons from one miner's life. Hi, it's me again, Jeff. I hope you've been enjoying this podcast as much as we have enjoyed making it. It's been a real treat to be able to really dig into the issues around coal and climate change, clean energy, and to hear from some really amazing people from Appalachia. If you appreciate this work, please support it. This is public media, and you know what we like to say? You are the public in public media. So do what you can to keep public media strong. Go to AppalachAmerica.org and make a donation. That's AppalachAmerica.org. Thank you. Well, as Chuck Keeney mentioned, one of the things that he and his fellow conservationists have done in southern West Virginia is to start a museum. They exhibit some of the artifacts they found, and they hope to promote cultural tourism. The West Virginia Mine Wars Museum was founded in 2015 in Matewan, a town with its own storied history of labor conflict. The museum draws on local support and expertise to tell those stories. As board member Wilma Steele put it, it's a chance for people to be in charge of their own history. Wilma is a retired teacher, and her husband, Terry, who grew up in Matewan, both volunteer at the museum. Terry Steele retired after 26 years of coal mining and what he guesses is about 60,000 hours spent underground. Imagine that. Steele is a staunch union man, even in his retirement, and his story alone tells a really interesting piece of mining and labor history, and I thought you'd want to hear it. Yes, my... uh... Great-grandfather, D.A. Steele, was a coal miner. He was around back when they were buying up all the uh, mineralites down in the southern part of the state. He actually sold them his, from what I've been told, for 50 cents an acre. At the time, I'm sure he didn't know it, but he condemned the rest of his generation and offspring to be working for people. My uh, grandfather was a coal miner, Jaeger Steele. He worked for probably 40-year underground. My father, Alfred Steele, was a coal miner. He worked 45-year, most of it underground. So, yeah, I've come from a, a long line of people who mine coal. The mission of the museum, I think, is to uh, teach correctly the history that took place in our area that hasn't been told before. And I still don't think a lot of the people in the area know what the history is of uh, how our mineral rights and uh, land was taken from us by large out-of-state corporations. And uh, I think the government and our political figures went along with it and uh, basically just wrote it out of our history books. So it wasn't taught in the schools, and if it wasn't taught at home, if your parents didn't know the history of it, you had no idea of where our roots originated at in this area and how the Union ever got started, you know. And even today, I think uh, 
it's a battle that goes on that is controlled by fossil fuel industries in this state. There are union, which is Local 1440, largest UMWA local, or we was the largest, I think we still are, in West Virginia and probably the country. At one time we had over 1,200 members. Now we're down to about 800 and some because our members have been dying off. We have nobody who is currently working in the mines. They're all old retired miners, most of them in their 70s, 80s. I'm a spring chicken at this place. The union had got a bad name. I've heard several people say, uh, yeah, the union brought their troubles on their self, you know. You know, I'm for unions, but, you know, they, uh, they brought a lot of this on themselves. It did lead to the downfall, I think, of the union. A lot of bad propaganda, which is always well-designed by those who are in power to convince other poor people to kick some other poor person in the ass, and they got by with it. You know, uh... <laughs> Everything that's going on right now seems to be geared toward division. And uh, this really always did disturb me uh, because we have the same things in common, but we just can't identify who the real enemy is. People are of the opinion now, I'm afraid, that unions are useless. And I'm sad to say, too, that uh, they're going to find out the hard way that they're not. Terry and Wilma Steele and the others at the Mine Wars Museum have big plans for the centennial of the Battle of Blair Mountain. You can find out more at wvminewars.org. I'm Jeff Young. Thank you for listening. This story comes from Appalachia America, a new podcast produced by Ohio Valley Resource and Louisville Public Media. Hazel Dickens takes us out with They'll Never Keep Us Down, a song she wrote for the union organizing film Harlan County, USA. for listening to Making Connections News. Please check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter as well. I'm your host, Mimi Pickering, from WMMT Mountain Community Radio. Well, the power